have uh, a few prayer requests that we want to lift up before the Lord, and then we'll go ahead and look at our proverb for this evening. I want to pray for Pastor Tony. He was out this morning. He was having a, a little swelling on his face, and uh, he went to the doctor, and it, it seems to be nothing serious, so we do pray that it would go down, and it might be just uh, some uh, skin irritation, so we do pray that uh, Pastor Tony would recover. For um, Sister Sherry uh, on vacation, we do pray for her and her husband that uh, they would be blessed and uh, that uh, they would make it home safely. And, and also for Brother Mike, Mike Reeder, a uh, little under the weather, but he's okay other than that, and um, he'll be um, with us soon, so we do want to lift them up. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we lift up our, our brothers and sister to you, Lord. We lift up Sherry to you and her husband, Lou, God, that you'd bless them. As they're on vacation, God, protect them, watch over them, and uh, bless their families. And, Lord, bring them home safely. We pray for Pastor Tony, that, God, you'd bless him and uh, that you'd take care of, of um, that swelling on his face, Lord, that uh, it would be nothing serious and that, God, he would um, be back with us soon, Lord. We do pray for Brother Mike, too, and uh, that you'd uh, touch him and um, that you'd heal his body and that, again, he would, uh, again, be back with us as well. So, Father, go before them. Go before any of those here or, Father, our church family that's sick, those that are at home. Uh, may you bless them, God. May you touch them. Touch those that are lonely, that are, that are hurting right now, Father, for those who have lost loved ones. Um, God, that you'd be with them. You'd strengthen them, God. Lord, that you would pour out your spirit on this dark and, and, and desperate world, God. They are in search of, of, of something, God, and they don't even know, God, uh, that, it's, that it's you they're looking for, though they might not want anything to do with you or the word. It's, it is you that they're looking for, God. May you open their eyes. May they see uh, right uh, in, in, in a correct way for the first time, God. They may come to know you, Father. We pray for this neighborhood, Lord, that your word, God, that your spirit would invade these homes, God, and that, God, they would, they would come to that place where they know that, that something is missing in their life as well, God, and it's you. So we thank you, God. We pray that you would anoint your word tonight, anoint our ears and our eyes and our heart, that we might hear, that we might see, that we might receive all that you have for us, God. We thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Proverbs 20, Proverbs 20. Last week when we looked at Proverbs 19, it was about life and conduct. Here in chapter 20, it's more about life and conduct. So uh, Solomon is still talking about wisdom, his wisdom, okay? Uh, it's directed specifically to young men, but it applies to every Christian. So again, we're still talking about the wisdom of Solomon. And even unbelievers can learn a lot from these Proverbs if they would read them and study them. And if they do, God will definitely have an effect on their life or the life of anybody who reads and applies them. Now, God's word will either bring you to God or it will drive you from Him. So your reaction to the word of God can't be neutral. Let's begin with verse 1 of Proverbs 20. As it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The word mocker, it, it, it speaks of wine as a mocker. It, it, strong drink will make a fool out of you. I think... We can all attest to that, either in our own experience or the experience of others. Uh, it says it's a brawler. Um, and we know, may know by experience or the experience of others that it leads to brawls. It leads to quarrels. It leads to just bad behavior many times. Now, this is the first time that Solomon brings up the subject of alcohol. And alcohol has caused a lot of of the evil that's been done down through the centuries. I want to spend a little time here on this topic because even the church and a lot of Christians have taken a real liberal standing on many things in the scripture. And drinking is one of them. 
And they've come out with all kinds of reasons. And we're going to cover some of them as to why. You know, and, and I want to come from the biblical perspective, naturally. And as the word speaks, then, you know, let's decide. Should we or shouldn't we? Is it okay? Is it not okay? And one of the first things I hear is, well, Jesus drank wine. You know, if you're going to use Jesus for an example, let's use him for the example in everything in our life. Follow his example in everything else in life. Now, in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, it, it gives a breakdown on the use of wine in biblical times. Mixed wine, we read that in the scriptures. In Old Testament times, wine was drunk undiluted. And wine mixed with water was thought to be ruined. Isaiah 1.22. It was also a cultural thing at the time, like it is in many countries. It's a cultural thing. It's not a cultural thing in the United States. Um, and so, again, a cultural thing like it was in biblical times. And it also, the, the wine was mixed with water. All right, it was, it, it, the mixed or mingled, mingled wines were prepared with aromatic herbs of various sorts. And some of these compounds used throughout the ancient world were highly intoxicating. Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah verse 22. Wine mixed with myrrh was stupefying, all right? And an anesthetic. If you remember Mark 15, 23, when Jesus was on the cross, they offered him some to take away his pain. What did he do? He refused it, didn't he? He refused it. The proportion of water was large in the wine in that day. The one that was, that was drank you know, by a lot of people. Only, it was only one-third or one-fourth of the total mixture being wine. Now, many of us have probably been negative, negatively affected in some way by drinking and drunkenness. And it's probably ruined more marriages and more families and more nations and businesses and more individual lives than any other single thing. And I know it, it did for in my family and Kathy's family. Drunkenness was one of the sins destroying the nation. Drunkenness is helping to destroy our nation today. And we're, not going to be, and we're not going to get away with it. And there are a lot of alcoholics in this country. A lot more people whose lives are directly affected by alcohol. A majority of fatal car accidents are caused by drunk drivers. And, you know, we see this, these, these breweries or these alcohol industry, these companies, when they're advertising their product, somewhere in small letters is drink responsibly. The best way to drink responsibly is not at all. In the rest of the Proverbs, we will see that alcohol leads to poverty Proverbs 21, 17 and Proverbs 23, 21. It causes grief. It causes fighting. It causes needless injuries. It causes gossip. It causes reddening of the eyes. Proverbs 23, 29 and 30. No matter how desirable the advertisers make it, it's a deceiver. And it injures everyone who drinks it. Proverbs 23, verses 31 through 32. It fills a person's thoughts with lust and leads to adultery, Proverbs 23, 33. And finally, it can be habit-forming, Proverbs 23, verse 35. We have a, an example in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. Let me read those verses to you. I should have had them already marked, but let me read Leviticus 10, verses 8 and 11. If you want to turn there or at least mark it down so that you can refer to it. And I'm sure you're pretty familiar with the story of Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. Beginning with verse 8, <clears throat> Leviticus 10. Oh, i got Exodus now. Let me get here to Leviticus. Leviticus 10, beginning with verse 8. Then the Lord, notice, the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, 
<clears throat> do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish, notice, between holy and unholy and between clean and unclean. Verse 11, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. With the privilege of ministry also comes responsibilities and sacrifices. It wasn't enough for the priest to teach the people the difference between the holy and the unholy. They also had to practice it in their own lives. God's word commands us concerning our ministry and we need to obey what God says. Everything that Nadab and Abihu did in chapter 10 when they went into the tabernacle of meeting was wrong. First, they were the wrong people to be handling the, the incense and presenting it to the Lord. It should have been their father, the high priest. Secondly, they used the wrong instruments. They used their own censers instead of the censer of the high priest. Third, they acted at the wrong time. It was only on the annual day of atonement where the high priest was allowed to go in, uh, to, to take incense into the Holy of Holies once a year. Fourth, Nadab and Abihu acted under the wrong authority. They didn't consult with Moses or their father, nor seek to follow God's word, which Moses had received. Fifth, in burning the incense, they used the wrong fire. Scripture called it, remember, strange fire. The high priest was commanded to burn the incense on coals taken from the brazen altar there in Leviticus 16, 12, but Nadab and Abihu supplied their own fire and God rejected it. Sixth, they acted from the wrong motive. They didn't seek to glorify God alone. Now, we don't know the secrets of their hearts, but you get the impression that what they did was an act, a willful act of pride. Their desire wasn't to sanctify and glorify God, but to promote themselves and be important. And lastly, they depended on the wrong energy. In Leviticus 10, 9 and 10, it implies, that they were, it implies they were under the influence of alcohol. Listen to what it says. Again, we read it already. Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. And that it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may distinguish between holy and holy and between clean and unclean. Every child of God... I should say, if every child of God were killed who substituted fleshly energy for the power of the Spirit, not many would be left. Proverbs 31.4 speaks about drinking in excess. Isaiah 5.11 speaks about drunkenness. Isaiah 5.22 speaks about injustice. Isaiah 28.7 speaks about drunken delusions. Isaiah 56, 12 speaks about loving to eat and to drink. So in light of many of the scriptures and many examples in the, in the Bible, how foolish then is it to take that first drink? A lot of people will quote Paul's word and next to what, next to, you know, using, well, Jesus drank wine. Here's what they'll say. As Paul said, everything is permissible for me, but not all things are good for me to do. Everything is lawful for me, but I will not become the slave of anything or be brought under its power. That's the first part of what Paul said is what they, well, what, is what they quote. Well, the Bible says that I can do anything. And Paul said, this is true. But notice the responsibility. He says, I, he says it may be lawful for me. I may have the okay to do it. But he says, I'm not going to become the slave of anything all right? Or I'm not going to be brought under its power. Is it necessary, Paul? Is it necessary for me to drink? No, it's not. All through the Bible, drunkenness is treated as a sin. The first time we saw a drunkard in the Bible was Noah in Genesis 9, verses 20 through 27. And then Lot in the disgraceful act that he committed with his daughters in Genesis 19, verses 30 through 36. And then Nabal. 2 Samuel chapter 25, verse 36. David, when he got Uriah drunk, trying to cover up his sin with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 13. 
It was in the 1960s when the American Medical Association classified alcoholism as a polite word or rewording for drunkenness. They reclassified drunkenness to be a disease. They said alcoholism was a disease. Now, you can reclassify drunkenness as a sickness, but the Holy Spirit classifies drunkenness as an excommunicating sin of the flesh in 1 Corinthians 5.11 and Galatians 5.21. Paul says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an adulterer or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Now, people are not held responsible for sickness, but God holds them responsible for drunkenness. Now, think about this. If alcoholism is a disease, why does the government allow the brewing company to spend all kinds of money to advertise their products to spread disease? Verse 1 says again, wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So, and this is just a portion of what the Bible says. So we would be very smart to believe what God says about drinking more than man's sales pitch. And to classify drunkenness as a disease is a deception. So after what the Bible says, we have to honestly ask ourselves, can I do it in front of others and before God in total faith and confidence that it's right. Secondly, can you glorify God in your drinking? Can you honestly drink and say, oh, I'm glorifying God. Let me have another one. I'm going to glorify Him some more. If you can, have at it. While the Bible does not command total abstinence, it certainly magnifies it and definitely warns against drunkenness. You know what? Again, we have a responsibility to those around us, our witness. All right? I may not stumble, but what example I'm leaving for somebody, they might stumble. You know, we don't know how other people are going to react to, to, to alcohol. Oh, well, he does it, she does it. You know, I saw Pastor Joe doing it, so why can't I? And then they become an alcoholic because they can't control it. They can't handle it. I've caused my brother to stumble big time. And Paul's, what did Paul say? He said, if I eat meat and it causes my brother to stumble, I'm not going to do it. I have a responsibility to my brothers and my sisters. I don't want to make them stumble. Even though I have a free, the freedom to do something, Hey, it might make them stumble. It might cause them great difficulty. And God will hold me accountable. So again, we have to honestly ask ourselves, can I do it in front of others and before God in total faith and confidence that it's the right thing to do? And can I glorify God in everything that I do? Verse 2, as we move on now. The wrath of a king is like the roaring of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger sins against his own life. Solomon says here that if you want to put yourself in a dangerous place with the king, make him mad. Kings are mentioned in verse 2, 8, and 26. And a king's anger is like the roar of a lion, Solomon says. And it's dangerous to make a ruler angry because he has the power to take the offender's life. But not just rulers, making anybody angry, and especially the day that we're living can be a problem for you, especially today. How many times do we hear about road rage on the news? And, and, and people get shot at, they get killed. Or they get run off the road. Verse 3. It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. In other words, it takes two to fight. One of the characteristics of a Christian is that he doesn't prolong tension. He doesn't prolong strife. Avoiding strife is honorable. But there, but there are some people who are just so quick to fight. You know, it, 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 rather than, than to, to, to put a stop to it. And, and, and these people, you know, the Bible says they're fools. 
Arguments can be avoided by overlooking insults, by dropping issues that are potentially explosive, and by getting rid of mockers, the Bible says. The rest of the verse here, it tells us to mind our own business, basically. Hey, anybody can start a quarrel. But we read in Proverbs 17, 14, the beginning of strife is like releasing water, so stop a quarrel before it starts. You know, it's like a small leak. If you don't stop the leak, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what Solomon says. The beginning of strife is like releasing water. So stop the quarrel before it starts. It's pride that makes a person stubborn or unwilling to back down graciously. Paul said this in Ephesians 4.3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The word endeavoring means to spare no effort. Paul was saying, do whatever you have to do to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as long as it's not, uh, uh, you know, breaking some biblical principle. But other than that, we are to do whatever it takes to stop a quarrel, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul said also in Philippians 4, 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. It's necessary. A man of God or a woman of God will be ready to give up their so-called rights rather than to keep strife alive. Only a fool will continue to argue and meddle with things that they have no business meddling in. Verse 4. The lazy man will not plow because of winter. He will beg during harvest and have nothing. Solomon is talking about laziness here again. Now in the Middle East, the time to plow and the time to plant was in the winter and during the rainy season. Now, Nobody would want to, you know, want to go out during, during rainy seasons and winter you know, to, to do that. But if you don't, you're not going to have a, a harvest. The lazy man doesn't want to work plowing a muddy field in the cold. But when that harvest time comes, hey, he's not going to have anything to eat. Without work and without planning ahead, there's no food. Now, we see on a lot of uh, city street corners, we see people with their signs, you know, homeless, you know, anything will help. And again, we do have, there are those that actually are, you know, in need of work. They're in need of help due to circumstances that were beyond their control. But you also have professional beggars who, who, who have their daily routine, who move from corner to corner, you know, looking for the generosity of people. And, and many of them who depend upon the generosity of people just don't want to work. And Solomon knew about that more than 3,000 years ago. He writes about it here. In verse 5, counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. In other words, the thoughts and, the, and purposes of a man, they're, they're hidden way down inside. Solomon says they're like, like deep water down in the ground, hard to understand and hard to get out. But Solomon says a man of understanding, they're able to, to, to draw it out. A person who's intelligent and understands human nature, they can bring it out. And they, can, they do it by using thoughtful questions and remarks to draw out you know, that hidden thought. And, and that's something you saw Jesus do all the time. He, he asked people questions. And he drew out the answers. He made them think. Verse 6. Most men will proclaim each his goodness, but who can find a faithful man? Loyalty and faithfulness are desirable qualities. But not everyone who claims to have them really does. And in fact, faithfulness is usually missing. Keeping your word and keeping your promises are important, the Bible teaches us. What Solomon was saying here is that the dependable man is hard to find. Verse 7. The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. Verses 7 through 11 deal with different kinds of behavior. Usually a righteous man, that is a person who consistently behaves correctly, a man that is blameless, has children who are blessed. His children see his example of integrity and they're encouraged to be the same kind of people. Verse 8. A king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. In other words, 
Kings often served as, as chief judges like Solomon did. And by carefully examining a situation, that is with his eyes, that's what it means there when it says that he scatters with his eyes in verse 8. He scatters all evil with his eyes. That is, when he's sitting in, in a judgment, when he's sitting in a case, he's examining the situation with his eyes. And a, and a, and a just king could sense evil motives and actions by the people. He couldn't be fooled very easily. Verse 9. Who can say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Even though a king was powerful, there were still some things that he couldn't do. Solomon knew that he couldn't say he had made himself pure. And he was guilty of many sins. You know, he couldn't control his lust. He had, a, he had a harem of a thousand wives and concubines. So he legalized it, but you know what? His lust still remained. You know, and we're all in the same boat. Paul said we've, we have all sinned, and we all come short of the glory of God. Verse 10. Diverse weights and diverse measures, they are both alike an abomination to the Lord. One sign of a person's bad motives and evil actions is his dishonesty in doing business. And God hates false weights and he hates false measures that people use in selling or buying merchandise in order to gain more money, but they do it dishonestly. Verse 11. Even a child is known by his deeds whether what he does is pure and right. Now, We've already seen in verse 6 what a person says doesn't always show what he is. And it's the same with children. Their actions and their behavior show what they're like, whether they're pure and right. A person's behavior reflects their character. Verse 12. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. That's why it's important very important, not only to listen with your ears to what people say, but also to watch with your eyes what people do. Both senses, the eyes and the ears, should be used to see if people are reliable. Verse 13. Do not love sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will be satisfied with bread. Again, laziness here. But laziness here is spoken of as sleep. And it leads to poverty. But diligence, referred to here as staying awake, leads to an abundance of food. Sleeping when you should be working, Solomon is saying it results in a lack of food. Verse 14. It is good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he has gone away, or when he has gone his way, then he boasts. I like this one because this is, this is so right on. Let me read it again. It is good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he has gone away, his way, then he boasts. You know, it's like, let's say a guy, a guy goes out to buy a car. He tells the owner, well, you know, I really don't think this car is worth the price that you're asking for. It needs new tires. It needs a paint job. You know, it has almost 100,000 miles on it. He says, I tell you what, I'll give you, you know, whatever it is. I'll give you so much for it. The owner says, well, I don't know. It's really worth a lot more. But you know what? I'll let it go for that. I really need the money. Well, I still think it's too much, but I'll take it anyway because I need the car. The new owner, he hops in the car. He drives away, and right away he calls his wife and says, hey, I got it, man. I practically got it for nothing. I practically stole the car. At the same time, the buyer goes into the house. He tells the wife, hey, I sold it. I got way more than it was worth. What a great deal. That's human nature. Each person feels like they got over on the other person. Verse 15. There is gold and a multitude of rubies, but the lips of knowledge are a precious jewel. Even though gold and rubies are rare and they're valuable, they're pretty common compared with the rare and valuable ability to speak with knowledge and to speak wisely and to use the appropriate words that fit the appropriate occasion. Verse 16. Take the garment of one who is surety for a stranger and hold it as a pledge when it is for a seductress. 
this, this, this verse is repeated word for word in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 13. A debtor's outer garment could be taken by a creditor as collateral to guarantee that the debtor would pay him back. But here, a creditor is commanded to take the garment of a person who co-signs for a stranger, especially if the stranger is a wayward woman here. Obviously, with the garment as collateral, the creditor is taking a big risk that he may never I'm sorry, without taking the garment as collateral, the creditor is taking a, a big risk that he may never get his money back. He may never get paid back by the debtor or the co-signer. So when you deal with certain people, this is what Solomon is saying, when you deal with certain people, you better have them put up a little collateral because if you don't, you're probably going to get ripped off. Verse 17. Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. In other words, a person may think they're getting away with dishonesty. And, you know, at first, you go, oh, man, I, I got away with it. Nobody knows. Nobody found out. You know, and it might, at first, it might be sweet to them. But nobody gets away with anything. God makes sure of it. And that's what it means here in verse 18 when it says, okay, bread, bread gained by deceit is sweet to him, but afterward his mouth is filled with gravel. In other words, it's not that good after you've committed the act. Because God will make sure of it. Verse 18. Plans are established by counsel, by wise counsel, wage war. Again, a, a, a good one to take to heart. Hastiness and thoughtlessness is what's condemned here. And what Solomon is saying here is that before you start something that might not be easy to finish, he says it's important to get counsel. It's important to, to talk to people that you can trust, people that you, that you know are wise. Uh, it, it's important to count the cost before you do something. Talk to people who have a, reputa a reputation for being wise and being sensible. And we see it in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 through 32. Jesus said, what king, when, it's, when he talked about counting the cost and following him, he said, what king now who's going to go to war you know, if he, has, if he doesn't sit down first and consider, you know, I've only got 10,000 guys. He says, and I'm going to go against this other king who has 20,000 guys. Now, do I just go to battle? Or do I sit down and talk to some people that I can trust, some wise men? And do I consider, do I start this war knowing I only have 10,000 men and I'm going against... Another king with 20,000. Again, you need to sit down, take counsel, consider all things, and count the cost before starting uh, an, an action. Verse 19. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. The person who flatters you to your face and then goes off and gossips about you is somebody you better stay away from and keep your eye on. And flattery, flattery is really manipulation. You know, they flatter you, they say nice things about you to basically get what they're looking for, or to get some response for you that's favorable to them. But if somebody does that and they flatter you to your face, you know, watch out. If they go off and they gossip about you, stay away from them. Watch those people. Because gossiping shows you that you can't put confidence in that person. And you need to be careful who you share your secrets with. Verse 20. Whoever curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in deep darkness. In the Old Testament, a person who cursed his parents broke the fifth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. That was a capital offense for, for young people or for, the, for people to, 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 again, curse their parents. And death was the penalty for doing that, for cursing and rebelling against parents. And where it says here, your lamp will be put out, it's pretty much what it's saying. To have one's lamp put out was a clear way of referring to death. Deep darkness is literally, okay, refers to the darkest part of the night. And then the word lamp here, it's a metaphor for bodily and spiritual life to happiness and prosperity, to a man's fame and reputation, to a man's future, and all of these senses may be at work in this rebuke. 
of that disobedient, stubborn child. He will suffer in body and soul. He will suffer, suffer in his character, in his f- future, and in his children. Verse 21. An inheritance gained hastily at the beginning will not be blessed at the end. Verses 22 through 24 I'm sorry, getting back to verse 21, speaking of an inheritance gained early or gained quickly, uh, may refer to getting your inheritance before its time. It's referring to getting your inheritance early because you're asking for it. You remember like the prodigal son? You know, or asking for or getting it dishonestly? Remember the, the, the prodigal son, he, he didn't... Uh, he, he didn't want to stay in the father's house. He didn't want to live under the father's rules. And he asked for his inheritance so that he could be on his way. But remember what happened? That inheritance was squandered by the prodigal son. And that's what might happen when you, if, if somebody gets an inheritance before their time. And it often prevents an initiative to work. Because again, like the prodigal son, he went out, he lived high on the hog, he partied with his friends, and guess what? We saw that he ran out of that inheritance, he ran out of the money. And, and he, he found himself in a bad way. You know, when the money was gone, so were the friends. He found himself eating with the pigs. And he realized how good his father was and how good he had it at home, and he ends up going back to home. So again, an inheritance that is quickly gained might, again, uh, just be squandered and, uh, and, and wasted. Verse 22. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and he will save you. Verses 22 through 24 each refer to the Lord's involvement with what man does, with the affairs of man. Now, to take vengeance into your own hands is wrong. It's wrong. And God says, I will take care of it. I will do it in my time. I will do it in my way. In Romans 12, 17 through 21, Paul said, Repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, do not offend yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Notice that. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Solomon's saying, you know what, if you, know, if you feel like taking revenge or you feel like you know, somebody's done you wrong, and, and our natural desire is to get even. It is to get to take revenge. But Paul says here, you know what? If, if your enemy is hungry... You don't, don't wish him, you know, oh, good, I'm glad you, I hope you starve to death, you know. Uh, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. The Bible says because when you do that, you heap coals of fire on his head. In other words, this guy knows he's done you wrong and, and, and he would expect you to want to get even, but you're being nice to him. You're following what the Bible says. Hey, if he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. It's heaping coals of fire on his head. You know, hopefully it will bring conviction to him. And Paul says, don't be overcome by evil. Don't let that get you. Don't let that get the best of you. He says, overcome evil by doing good. See, that's the Bible's prescription, instruction. For wanting, instead of wanting to, to do evil and to get, you know, take vengeance, to do good. It's a lot better to leave the punishment of wrongdoing in God's hands. Because in His time and in His way, He will deliver that punishment. Verse 23. Diverse weights are an abomination to the Lord, and dishonest scales are not good. Now, this, is, this, is, this verse is like verse 10, except in verse 10, dishonest weights and measures is what Solomon refers to, where here, dishonest weights and scales are mentioned. Verse 24, a man's steps are of the Lord. How then can a man understand his own way? Here, Solomon is warning against independence. One of the things that Satan loves to bring up 
You know, this is, this is what got Eve in trouble. When, 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 when Satan began to talk to her and say, you know, God, God doesn't want you to enjoy life. You know, he wants you to, to kind of be in bondage to him, to do what he says. And you're not free to go do what you want to do. And our natural desire is want to want to do what we want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. I don't like anybody telling me what to do. And again, Solomon is warning here against that, that thought process. Our problem is that we can only see a part of the picture. When God says, don't go there, you may not be able to know why or see why. But God can see the whole picture. He sees you walking ahead and you're headed for trouble. You know, it's like being at a parade. You know, wherever you sit, you can only see what's in front of you. And you know, you strain to see what's coming up, and you look down there, and you can't see what's already past you. All you can see is what's there in front of you. But you see, from God's vantage point, God can see the parade from beginning to end and everything in between, all at the same time. So you see, God can weigh out all the factors, all of the things that come into play when you are having to make a decision. And I think of God's people at the Red Sea. Remember when they got to the Red Sea and they couldn't see any way out? What did they do? Oh, you know, God brought us out here to die. What are we going to do now? Oh, woe was me. Because from the people's vantage point, they didn't know where to go. There was mountains on both sides. There was no way to get across the Red Sea. And the Egyptian army is right behind them. What do we do now? Our goose is cooked. You see, God could see everything. He knew everything. He knew what to do. He knew where to take them. He knew how he was going to get them across. And that's what we have to understand. God sees everything. He sees our situation. He knows the way out. He knows how to take care of our needs. And so... God knew what to do, where to go, when his people were there at the Red Sea. And as we go through this life's journey, it's so important that we come to the one who knows the way. And what does the Bible say? He is the way. Jesus said, I am the way. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is no other way. It does tell us, the the Proverbs does tell us, Uh, Psalms tells us that there is a way that seems right to man, but it ends in death. Verse 25. It is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. This is talking about making promises to God and then going back on that promise. Solomon is saying here, don't trap yourself by making a reckless promise to God and then later on, you know, counting the cost. In other words, it's dangerous to dedicate something to God or make a sincere promise to God and then go back on your promise. We have a a, a sad example in Judges chapter 11, verses 29 through 34 with Jephthah, Jephthah. Remember, it says that Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, and he said, Lord, if you give me victory over the Ammonites, I will give to the Lord whatever comes out of my house to meet me when I return in triumph. He says, the first thing that walks out of my house, I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. And it goes on to say, when Jephthah returned home, his daughter came out to meet him. She was playing on a tambourine and dancing for joy. She was his only child. When he saw her come out of that door, he tore his clothes in anguish. He said, oh, my daughter, you have completely destroyed me. You've brought disaster on me, for I have made a vow to the Lord and I cannot take it back. He made this rash promise without thinking, whatever comes out of my house, I'm going to dedicate it to you. And he couldn't go back on that vow. That's why Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, he says, walk prudently when you go to the house of God and draw near, notice, and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. 
He said, do not be rash with your mouth and let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Good, good advice there. He says, for a dream comes through much activity and a fool's voice is known by his many words. When you make a vow to God, here it is. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Do not let your mouth cause your flesh to sin, nor say before the messenger of God, Oh, that it was an error. Oh, sorry, God, I made a mistake. Why should God be angry at your excuse and destroy the work of your hands? Notice, for in the multitude of dreams and many words, there is also vanity. But fear God. Good advice from Solomon. We need to be careful about the promises we make to God. Especially by not keeping them. Verse 26. A wise king sifts out the wicked and brings the threshing wheel over them. Kings are responsible to separate the wicked from the righteous and to try and correct the behavior of the wicked by punishing them. And the first of these responsibilities is suggested by the word sifts here, which means winnowing in verse 8. And the second, by threshing. Now, in farming, grain is threshed before it's winnowed. And in threshing, a sledge, the threshing part, again, that's the first part before the winnowing, a, a sledge with spikes would be pulled over the stalks of grain. And it would separate the grain from the stalks and it would free the seeds from the chaff. So, you know, the wheat would grow on these stalks. So it would separate the wheat from the stalks. It would break it off of the stalks. And then it would separate the, 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 the seeds of grain from the chaff. And, and I've mentioned this before, that, that chaff is like that, that real thin covering that's over a peanut. You know, that's the part that sticks to your teeth and gets on your clothes. And, you know, you don't want that part. But that's like the chaff compared to the wheat. And so the threshing tool comes down. It breaks the wheat off of the stalk. It, re, it, it breaks loose the chaff. And then when it's all piled up, the, the farmer come, comes along with the winnowing fork. And what he would do, he would dig into that pile that's already been threshed. He'd throw it up into the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away. And the wheat, was, being the heaviest, would fall back down. So he'd do the whole pile like that. He'd winnow the, the wheat. The chaff would be blown away. And what he has now is a pile of, of wheat without the chaff and without the stalks. And so a king or other rulers should make sure that the wicked are discovered and they're punished. And this is important uh, in maintaining order and justice. So again, he was to separate the, the, the wicked from the justice, from the fair, I'm sorry, the, the wicked from the righteous, just as the farmer would separate the wheat from the chaff. Verse 27. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all the inner depths of his heart. The spirit of a man is the lamp of the Lord. And notice the Lord is in capital letters. It's, it's the, the national name of God, Jehovah. The spirit of man is only the lamp. It's the vessel that holds the light. Man, man is just a lamp. We are just a lamp until we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't become a light. A king searches out sinners, like verse 26 says, and the, the Lord searches out a person's inner heart. Just as a lamp shows us what's in the darkness, God shows what's in man's spirit, and he searches out the deep things of man, according to verse 30. Verse 28, Mercy and truth preserve the king, and by loving kindness he upholds his throne. Mercy and faithfulness. They are needed qualities to be a good ruler. Loyalty or love, that's what keeps him on the throne. Disloyalty and unreliability could cause people to want to replace him with a different ruler. Verse 29, the glory of young men is their strength and the splendor of old men is their gray head. Yeah. Here in verse 29, the beauty of old men is their gray hair. That's the Bible talking, it ain't me. And a king needs both. In other words, he needs the power of the young men to carry out his, his decisions. And he needs the good sense of the old men to enlighten his thoughts. 
Now, in Hebrew culture, the young and the old each had a particular quality that the other didn't have. And again, that's the importance of the church, of the, having the young and the old. The young were proud of their physical strength. The older were, were proud. They, they had their wisdom, which was revealed by their gray hair. Verse 30. Blows that hurt cleanse away evil as, as do stripes the inner depths of the heart. Lastly here, the purpose of corporal punishment meant by the words blows or wounds or beatings here isn't to, it isn't to inflict pain. All right, It's not for the purpose of inflicting pain, but to turn a person's behavior away from sin. But this punishment here isn't just to change a person's behavior because they're afraid of the physical pain, but to help them mature. That is to, to, to cleanse their innermost being. Just like the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 67, he said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But he says, now I keep your word. And that's what the, pur- that, what the purpose is many times of, of the afflictions that we experience. You know, I, I'm on the wrong plat- path. I'm not doing what I should be doing. I may be living in sin and God has to deal with me. And he afflicts me. Or he brings some trial in my life. He, he does something that will help me to keep from going further down that road on the wrong path. And as the psalmist said, now, since I've been afflicted, he says, I keep your word. And that God, that's God's entire purpose. He wants us to keep his word. He wants us to stay on that straight and narrow path that leads us to heaven. Father, we thank you once again for the wisdom of the Proverbs, Lord. Father, help us, Father, help us to take these Proverbs to heart, God. Help us to look at those that that especially speak to us where we are, God, and and maybe there are certain things that, that we need to change, we need to do, God, that, Father, would bring ourselves in line with your word, God. That, Father, our words and our works would match, that we wouldn't say one thing and be doing another, Lord. So, Father, we thank you for the wisdom of the word. We thank you for the scriptures that you've left with us, God. And we pray, God, that, again, that you would continue to minister to us, that we, God, can minister to others. And so, Lord, we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.